Well, if you have your Bibles with you today, I want you to open those with me to Matthew chapter 27. Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 through 54. And if you didn't bring a Bible with you today, that's okay. We have some Bibles in the pew racks there in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible or you don't have one that you like to read from, maybe you have an older translation or something that doesn't quite speak to you in the way that you understand, please take one of our English Standard Version Bibles with you as our gift today. That's the Bible that I preach from. It's a great translation. Let that be your Easter gift today from First Baptist Church. But please look with me in Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 through 54. And then if you are able, I want to ask you to stand with me once again as we honor the reading of God's word as our sole source of authority from him. Matthew 27, verse 45 says, Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion... And those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Amen. You may be seated. Truly, this was the Son of God. That is the most important confession that any of us could ever make in our lives. Recognizing Jesus for who he is and trusting in him as Lord and Savior. Now, it was around 10 years ago, I was driving home from seminary in North Carolina back to Tennessee, and I received a call to go straight to my grandmother's house. And when I arrived there after the long eight-hour drive, I found out that she was very near death and wouldn't live much longer. In fact, when I got there, we spent a few hours with her, and then when all the family had arrived, we gathered around her bed for those final moments. And I watched my grandmother very gently and peacefully take her final breath. And then she went out into eternity to be with her heavenly father. You know, over the years serving as a pastor, I've had the opportunity to be with with dear Christian believers and others who have died. And I've been with them as they have taken their final breath. And most of them, on most occasions, it's been a very gentle and peaceful exit out into eternity. Maybe some of you have been with a loved one before when you're there with them in those last moments and it's just a peaceful, gentle departure out into eternal life to be with their heavenly father. That is really a comfort and a joy when you know where a person is headed and they gently and peacefully leave this earth. You know, the final hours of our Lord Jesus' life were anything but gentle and peaceful. He died a very different death, a very tragic and horrifying death on the cross at Calvary. 
Most of us know that when the Lord Jesus died, that it was the most painful and the most horrifying death that anyone has ever died throughout history. And then just to think that the Lord Jesus knew about such a death even before history began. He was preparing from eternity past for that very moment when he would die, that painful death in the place of sinners. You see, on Thursday evening, the night before Jesus died, he met with his disciples in the upper room for the final time. And he spoke to them about his upcoming departure and what was going to happen to him on the next day as he would be sacrificed. He he washed their feet, he spoke with them and gave them words of comfort. Then he invited them to have a Passover meal together. This would be what we call the Last Supper where Jesus used the unleavened bread and the cup of wine to be symbols of what was going to happen to his body and the blood that was going to be poured out for the sins of many. And then that night, very few of the disciples actually knew what Jesus was even talking about. They were often confused and didn't understand. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, had betrayed him. And as the disciples moved with their Lord into the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas led an angry mob of Roman soldiers and Jewish authorities to have him arrested there in the garden. And that's the moment that Jesus formally made his painful journey to the cross. And early Friday morning, sometime in the middle of the night, Jesus was being tried unlawfully by the religious authorities. He was mocked, he was beaten, he suffered many great horrors on his own body. We know that on what we call Good Friday, that Jesus was falsely accused and sentenced to death. The Jewish people mocked him by giving him a crown of thorns, placing a scarlet robe over him. They gave him a staff like a king and they, and they mockingly worshipped him as the king of the Jews, spitting upon him, harassing him, calling him ugly names, humiliating him like no one has ever been. And then after the trial was complete, all those who were hailing Jesus as the Messiah on Palm Sunday were now yelling out, crucify him, crucify him because he did not deliver in their minds the type of kingly leadership they were expecting. They were expecting a political king, and yet Jesus is a spiritual king. So they had him crucified and put to death. And then as we understand from the scriptures, it was around 9 o'clock in the morning when Jesus was finally nailed to the cross where he would suffer and die. You know, according to the Gospels, Jesus suffered on the cross for six hours, from 9 o'clock in the morning until 3 p.m., in the afternoon. And the first three hours that Jesus was on the cross was filled with just horrific pain, excruciating physical pain. But yet during those three hours, Jesus was able to ask God the Father to forgive those who was torturing him on the cross. He gave instructions to John, the disciple, to take care of Mary, his mother, in the days ahead. He also was able to lead one of the thieves that was next to him on the cross to eternal life. He said, on this day, you will be with me in paradise because he confessed Jesus as Lord. Jesus did all of that in the first three hours on the cross. But you see, while the first three hours were extremely painful and humiliating for Christ, it wouldn't compare to the pain and suffering that he would experience in the final three hours that he was on the cross. You see, the pain and suffering, the physical pain, it was all still there. But it was in the final three hours that Jesus was on the cross that he would face the greatest horror in history. As he would take upon himself all of the sins of the world, 
He would take the wrath of God the Father upon him. He would receive all the judgment upon himself and actually be separated from the presence of God the Father. That was the greatest horror that Christ ever experienced or anyone would ever experience in the world's history. And yet the greatest horror that Christ would experience would also be the greatest hope for all of us. Because the hope that we have in salvation that we celebrate on Easter Sunday came through the horrors that Jesus faced on the cross. And today I want to talk to you about the hope and the horror of the cross. What exactly that Jesus did for us as he was dying on the cross and how that can bring all of us hope today. So what did Jesus do while he was on the cross and how can that be hope for your life and everyone else's life in the world today? That's what I want us to look at. So I want to begin by looking at the horror of the cross, the horror of the cross. Look with me in verse 45. Mark's gospel reports that Jesus' crucifixion actually began in the third hour around nine o'clock a.m. But Matthew picks up right here when it's the sixth hour. He says in verse 45, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. So the sixth hour would have been noon. And noon is not just the middle part of the day, but it's also the part of the day when the sun is directly overhead and the earth is illuminated at its brightest. And that's very significant because of a detail that Matthew gives us here. He says that when it was the sixth hour at noon, A great darkness came over all of the land for three hours until the ninth hour, until 3 p.m. Now, some people may wonder, why did darkness come over the land? And was this darkness real? Well, the language that Matthew uses here is always used to describe a historical fact. And the tense of the verb to talk about the darkness coming indicates that it was a sudden darkness, like a blackout, like all of a sudden the lights just went out in a room. This darkness happened right at noon in the middle of the day when the Lord Jesus was hanging on the cross. Some have said, well, this may have just been a bad thunderstorm that come overhead or it could have been an eclipse, but nothing like that lasts for three full hours. It had to be the supernatural work of God to cause this darkness to come over the land. So you may be wondering, well, why is this darkness here? What is God trying to tell us through the darkness that came in that third hour when Jesus Christ was on the cross. If you understand the Bible and throughout the Bible, darkness is always a symbol of God's judgment. Always a symbol of God's judgment. Anytime that God is going to judge someone for their sins or judge a nation for their sins, darkness is always a symbol that's used. In fact, in Joel chapter 2 verse 31 It says, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. This is the final judgment. Darkness will come over the land at noon in this great and final day. Amos, when he's prophesying the judgment coming to Israel, he says in Amos chapter 8 verses 9 and 10, and on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for only a sun and the end like a bitter day. See, the Bible indicates that when darkness comes upon the land, judgment is appearing from God. 
Even Peter describes the place of hell as a place of darkness. He says, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So darkness is related to where the fallen angels exist. And Jesus even says in Matthew chapter 8, verse 12, talking about the place of hell, he says, the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So it appears that when Christ was on the cross and the place went dark, God is telling us that my judgment for all of the sins of the world is coming upon this man. I am judging him right now for everything that is wrong in the world. That's the message that God was showing us here as Jesus was dying on the cross. You see, what we have to understand is that when Jesus was dying, He was taking the judgment and the pain and the suffering that we all deserved in our lives upon himself. The darkness of the judgment of God was upon him. And just like in the Old Testament when darkness covered the land when the Passover lamb was slain, now darkness has covered the land when the greatest Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, has been slain. You see, when Jesus was first experiencing the punishment of the Romans, now he is experiencing the punishment of God all upon himself. And look what it says in verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are probably some of the most epic words that we see anywhere in all of scripture. Because as Jesus was under the darkness of God's judgment, He was there in agony and the pain and suffering in his physical body. He actually called out to God and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, the word forsaken here is so important and it's so filled with all kinds of meaning. The word forsaken pictures someone that is abandoned during difficult circumstances. It's like someone who is lost at sea in a ship. And in the distance, they can see rescue boats looking for them. And all of a sudden, they see the rescue boats turning around and leaving them out there in a hopeless condition, never to return, calling off the search. They've been abandoned. When Jesus was on the cross, the darkest moment in human history, God the Father abandoned his son. He abandoned his son. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that Jesus, it doesn't mean that Jesus is no longer God or that he's not a part of the Trinity or that God the Father doesn't love him. But in that moment, when Jesus had all of our sins placed upon him, that God the Father abandoned him to the point that Jesus no longer felt his peace. He no longer felt his joy. The Father was not there to comfort him in his pain. The Father was not there to assure him that everything was going to be all right. The father was not there to strengthen him or to give him guidance or encouragement. The father had completely pulled himself away, his presence away from the son. And Jesus Christ was there without a momentary close relationship with his father. That is the most horrifying thing that Jesus ever experienced. None of the nails, none of the the crown of thorns, none of the, the pain and suffering that he would go through physically would ever compare to losing sight and losing that relationship with his father. Jesus essentially was feeling the effects of lostness. He was feeling what it feels like to be lost in sin. 
Not because he had any of his own sins. Jesus lived a very perfect life. He never committed one sin. But he had all of the sins of believers and others who who committed these sins against God. He had them all upon himself at this point on the cross. He felt the guilt and the dirtiness and the evil and the sin that we feel. And God the Father could not look upon him with all of that sin. He abandoned him there on the cross. It's interesting that Jesus does not call out to God as Father. The normal word is Abba, which means Father. That's how Jesus addresses the Father throughout the the Gospels. Here, he simply calls him my God, my God. The word is El, and it means the God of, uh, of, of judgment, this God who is in control of everything, Almighty God. Jesus was addressing his Father now as his judge as he was dying on the cross. You see, Jesus was made sin for us. He was taking our curse He was being wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. And he was receiving the full wrath of God and punishment upon himself. And that's what this spiritual separation indicates. You know, John Calvin said that he bore in his soul the terrible torments of a condemned and lost man. Jesus was experiencing lostness. William Hendrickson says that hell came to Calvary on that day. You know, when you talk about hell in the Bible... You know, hell, a lot of people today have a very confused and and misunderstanding of what hell is. They think it's just the place that's opposite of heaven where where bad people go and they're down there doing their thing and they're not in heaven and it's just a place, you know, that you just go and you can have a good time. But that's not what hell is. You see, hell is separation from God the Father, separation from all that is good. The Bible describes hell as a very dark and gloomy place filled with pain and suffering and weeping and gnashing of teeth. Apart from anything that is good, there will be no one in hell who enjoys being there. And it will be for all of eternity. But I want to tell you, when Jesus Christ was dying on the cross in this very scene, he was experiencing hell. He was experiencing separation from the Father. He was experiencing the darkness that had been created in this time. He was experiencing the weeping and gnashing of teeth that comes with the pain and torments of the cross. And yet he took all of that for us so that we could have eternal life and not have to experience that in our own lives. Because if you don't trust in Christ and you don't follow him, that's the penalty that you have to pay, not just for an afternoon, but for all of eternity. And because Christ was the sinless lamb of God and because he was God in human flesh, what he did in those three hours was equal to what it would take us to do for all of eternity. Jesus took the full penalty and blame for our sin. You know, if you think about what this means for you today, it means that Jesus died so that he could pay the price for every ugly word you've ever spoken, for every evil thought that you've ever had, for every selfish feeling, for every immoral behavior, for every unloving action, everything that you've ever done wrong in your life, Jesus paid the price that day for you. You say, Pastor, you just don't understand how bad that I've been. You don't know how far away I've been and all the things that I've got into. Let me tell you, Jesus' death was fully sufficient to pay for anything that you've ever done wrong. There is not one person in the world who is hopeless without Christ because Jesus' death was sufficient to pay for anything that anyone has ever done if they will confess and repent and turn to him in faith. I want you to notice what happens in verses 47 through 49. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. 
And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. You see, when the crowds heard Jesus say, Eloi, Eloi, which is father, father, or, or my God, my God. They said, that sounds a lot like he's calling for Elijah. They thought that's what he was saying, probably because Christ wasn't speaking very clearly at that point. And there was an ancient tradition that said that Elijah would come and rescue the righteous whenever they were in trouble. And so mockingly, they said, let's see if Elijah would actually come and rescue this man who's a failure, who's the king of the Jews. And John tells us that Jesus said that he was thirsty at this point on the cross. So one of the Roman soldiers who had pity for Christ went and gave him some of the sour wine that they were drinking that would actually try to revive him a little bit. But the other said, don't give him that. Let's see if Elijah will really come and get him. And they were mocking Jesus even as he was suffering through this time. But you see, while Elijah did not come to rescue Jesus, God the Father did. God the Father came to rescue him. Look what it says in verse 50. And Jesus cried out again, and with a loud voice, he yielded up his spirit. This is the very last moment of Jesus' life, when he's on his deathbed, so to speak. And these are the last seconds that we have recorded about what he did before he would die. And it says right here that Jesus cried out and he yielded up his spirit. John declares in John chapter 19, verse 30, that Jesus said, it is finished before he died. What is finished? Jesus just finished at that point, paying for all of the sins of the world so that we could have forgiveness. He fully completed the work that the father gave him from eternity past. And at that point, the wrath of God was lifted off of Jesus. He said, it is finished. I have accomplished it. It's over. And then and it says here, and it says also in Mark and Luke, that he committed his spirit to God the father and Jesus breathed his last. You see, the language indicates that Jesus' life came to a sudden stop. Nobody took it from him. Nobody made Jesus die. He voluntarily gave his life as a ransom for many. And the father essentially rejoined his son there in spirit in that fellowship that they had all throughout eternity. And he brought him into paradise saying, well done, good and faithful servant. So the victory over sin and death was accomplished. The head of the serpent had been crushed and the corrupt hearts of humans were ready to have new life. Jesus had endured the horror of the cross and it was finished. And he did all of that in our place. And this is what leads us to the hope of the cross, to the hope of the cross. Some of you are wondering, well, that's a very gruesome story and that's a dramatic story, but what does that mean for my life today? What can I expect in my life from what Jesus did for me on the cross? Why do I need him? Well, I want you to notice the hope of the cross in the next several verses here. It says in verse 51, it begins by saying, and behold, and behold. Now, don't overlook these words because Matthew has just ended telling us about Jesus dying. And now he's going to tell us the results about what his death would bring. And the words, and behold here, always point us to look or notice something that's very important. He's saying, look at what is happening. This is very important for you to see. So what, do we, what are we going to look at here? Well, there are some supernatural signs that follow the death of Christ that happened immediately as he took his last breath and finished the Father's mission. And these signs intend to tell us what the death of Christ will do for all believers in history. Notice the first sign is that we have access to God, access to God. It says here in verse 51, 
that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, this is a very interesting scene because you have to picture the temple there that was there in Jerusalem, the house of God, where people went to pray and to sacrifice, where the presence of God was contained in, his, in, the, in the inner sanctuary there of the Holy of Holies. It was a little room in the temple there that had a curtain between it and the rest of the temple. And no one could ever go in that room because God could not have sinful humans come into contact with him. It was the place where God's spirit was and where he was represented on earth. There was only one time of the year that anyone could ever go in that room and it was the high priest on the day of atonement when he was making sacrifice for sins and he had to go through all kinds of ritual cleanings and ceremonies in order just to go into that room for one day. You see, the curtain represents our separation as sinners from God. That's what the curtain represents. We can't have access to God because of our sins. And I'm not talking about the people that you may be picturing in your minds, the worst sinners you can think of. I'm talking about anyone that's ever committed one sin cannot have access to God. That's why no sinner is able to enter into heaven and have eternal life. But you see what happened here. Because Jesus died on the cross and paid the penalty for all of our sins, Now the curtain has been torn. Now we can have access to God through our relationship with him through Jesus Christ. Jesus has given us permission to have a relationship with God. And that's something that you can't do on your own. You have no hope of eternal life on your own. There's not enough works you can do to please God. There's not enough money you can give to please God. There's not enough activities in your life that you can fill to please God in order for him to allow you to come into heaven. You are simply hopeless as the Bible says. But when Jesus Christ died in your place, God transferred your sins to him through faith and his righteousness to you. So now you can have access to God and have eternal life. And that is what this sign was pointing to. We can have access to God through faith in Christ. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 20, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Jesus gives us access to God the Father like no one else can. That's why Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. I want to tell you today, if you're trying to earn your salvation by going to church enough and praying enough and reading your Bible enough or trying to be good enough, it will never get you one inch closer to heaven. That's not to say that as a Christian, you shouldn't do those things. But if you're trusting in those things to bring you to God, you'll never get there because there's sin in your life and you're still separated from the Father. You need to turn to Christ in faith and trust in him in order to be saved. That's the message that we see of the curtain. That's the access we have to God. But not only access to God, but we also see here that we can avoid eternal judgment. Look what it says at the end of verse 51. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. So as this massive curtain was torn from top to bottom, the writer also tells us that rocks literally split open and an earthquake shook the ground that was there where Jesus was crucified. You may say, well, what on earth could this signify here? Well, you see, throughout the Bible, anytime God's presence enters into the picture and judgment follows, it usually happens through an earthquake. That's how God communicates his judgment in many places. It's like the the book of Nahum in the Old Testament. It says in Nahum chapter 1 verse 5, 
that the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, and the world and all who dwell in it. Nahum is talking about judgment. In the book of Revelation, which is still to come, it says that in chapter 6, verses 12 through 14, that when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood. And the stars fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. You see, what I believe that God is showing us here through this earthquake is a sign that his judgment is coming for those who don't turn and trust, to his, trust in his son. He's showing us that I'm a God of judgment and I've given you my son, but if you don't turn to him in faith, judgment and eternal penalty will be with you forever if you don't turn to him. But you see, those who do turn to Christ, you avoid all of that judgment. Jesus took the judgment for you so you can have eternal life with God forever free of any judgment. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 18, that whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You see, if you're not a believer today, you are already condemned. You are already sentenced to death. The judgment is waiting on you. Don't endure that judgment. Turn to Christ and be saved. And while we see that we can avoid eternal judgment, This last sign gives us the assurance of eternal life, the assurance of eternal life. Look what it says in verses 52 and 53. It says, Then the tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now, this is one of the most incredible parts of this whole story. Because after Jesus Christ died on the cross... The earth was quaking. The temple curtain was torn. It says that the actual tombs of deceased Old Testament saints were opened. And these saints came out of these tombs with new bodies. They were resurrected from the dead. And then it tells us that after Jesus had been raised on the third day, that these bodies actually appeared to people in the city. This is not symbolism here. This is fact. These are things that really happened. These dead bodies came out of the grave and appeared to people. And some scholars think that since they already had their glorified, resurrected bodies ahead of time, that they just more or less ascended into heaven to be with the Father after this time happened. But the main point here that we need to see is that God is giving us a preview of what will happen to all believers in the end. You see, the Bible teaches that when a believer dies, their spirit goes to heaven to be with the Lord. And the spirit awaits the time until the Lord Jesus returns in the second coming. And then scripture teaches that at the second coming of Christ, that all of the dead in Christ, okay, those who are filling our cemeteries today and other places, they will be raised out of the ground. Their spirit from heaven will rejoin their physical body and they will be made into a perfect glorified body. The body that they will live in forever and ever as they serve God in heaven. Then they will live in the new heavens and the new earth, a perfect world that God is renewing that will have no problems, no sickness, No sin, no temptation, no broken families, won't have any issues with health. It is going to be a perfect world to live in and you will have a perfect body. That is the message that he wants us to see here. But the main message is that it only comes to those who trust in Christ. It doesn't just come to those who try to live good life or those who've been to church a few times. It doesn't come to those who just try to do more good than bad. 
It comes to those who have been born again through the Holy Spirit by trusting in Christ. And if you've not been born again today and filled with God's Spirit, you have no hope of eternal life. That's the message of the gospel. And you say, well, how do we know that all of this is true? How do we know that Jesus' payment was enough? How do we know that the dead are going to be raised and that they'll avoid judgment and that we have access to God? How do we know all this is true? It sounds really too good to be true, Pastor. We know because on the third day, Christ was raised from the dead. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, it proved to us and to everybody in the world that everything God said is true. It proves to us that God exists, that he's revealed truth to us, that he's in control, that the gospel is true, and that we have eternal life through Christ. And all of that is true, and it's sealed and guaranteed. That's how we know that all of this is true. It's through the resurrection of Christ. One thing I want to share with you right before we finish is in verse 54. This is one of the most important parts of the story. It says, when the centurion and those who were with him, the very ones who killed Christ, it says, when they were keeping watch over him and they saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this is the son of God. You see, the centurion who was murdering Christ there on the cross all of a sudden had his heart open to the truth. God in his grace allowed him to see that this was no ordinary man. He heard the earthquake. He may have heard about the temple curtain being torn. He, the dead were being raised. He said, there is something about this man that is very different. Truly this man must be the son of God. See, Luke says that he praised God. And there's an ancient legend that says that this centurion actually became a believer the days following. He recognized Christ for who he really was and made a decision on, about Christ that very day that this was the son of God. Hopefully we can believe the legend that he placed his faith in him and was saved. But you know what it tells us here is that everyone who hears the gospel must respond. You must respond in some way. It doesn't tell us what everybody else said. It just said this man believed that Jesus was the son of God. You see, everybody who hears the gospel, everybody who's here today is going to respond in one way or another. You either respond to this good news of your forgiveness by saying, I want this in my life. I want to turn to Christ and believe and give my life to him. Or you say, you know what, it sounds good, but I'm happy living in my sin. I'm happy living away from God's will. And I'm just going to keep on going in this direction. That's the other response. There's no middle ground. You either respond by choosing to follow or choosing to back away. I hope today that you will choose to follow. Just on this past Friday night on Good Friday, I was having dinner in Nashville, Tennessee with some family. We're at a restaurant downtown. It was a great southern restaurant, and we had a good time. And I was going out to get the car, and there was a, a valet car hop that came. I gave him my ticket, and he came back around. I was thinking, you know, it's Good Friday. I want to share the good news of Christ with this man. And as he pulled the car up, and I was giving him a little bit of tip. I said, hey, you know, today is Good Friday and that 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for your sins today. God loves you. And he just looked at me and looked confused and just kind of walked away like he didn't even, even want to think about it or talk about it. And I wonder how many of you today are going to respond like that. Or are you going to respond and say, yes, I believe that God sent his son in the world to die for me. I believe that he took all of my pain and punishment and sin. I believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven and the only way I can have access to heaven is placing faith in him, which means that I turn away from my sin and I give Jesus my life. I begin following him today. How many of you are gonna believe like that? 
Or are you going to turn away and say, it's not for me. I don't want anything to do with this Savior. I urge you to turn to Christ and be saved today. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for just a beautiful day. Not only beautiful because of the sunshine, Lord, but beautiful because of the resurrection of Christ. To know that even though we are all sinners who deserve eternal death, that Christ took the judgment we deserved for us on his own flesh. Father, that free gift of salvation that is available to those who believe, I know that it must be accessed through faith. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here today that has not trusted Christ, that they would just give him their heart today in faith. They would turn and follow him, professing Jesus as their Lord, being born again in the Spirit. And Father, if there's anyone here today who is a believer that's struggling with their faith, that needs to be renewed, I just pray that you would allow them to experience the grace that you have in that renewal. So Lord, we give you the glory and the honor for everything that you've done, especially our salvation through Christ alone. It's in his name we pray, amen.